In an email somebody sent me uh, this past week, a number of interesting facts were highlighted. Maybe you've seen these about a rapidly changing world. It's amazing. Many, many facts. Let me give you some of them. Facts like these. The average person will have had 12 jobs by their 38th birthday. That's a lot of change, isn't it? A lot of change. The top 10 jobs that will be in demand in 2010 did not even exist in 2004. Which means we are currently preparing students for jobs that don't yet exist. Where they will use technologies and tools that haven't been invented in order to solve problems we don't even know are problems yet. Isn't that interesting? 70% of U.S. United States four-year-olds have used a computer. I can believe that. They know how to use it better than I do. I tr- uh, trust me, I'm convinced of that. There are over more than 100 million registered people on myspace.com, which means if MySpace were a country, it would be the 11th largest country in the world. Interesting. The first text message was sent in 1992. My youngest daughter probably sent it. No, no, she, she wasn't even born yet. 1992, the first text message was sent. Now, the number of text messages sent and received every day exceeds the population of the world. And you get half of them, you probably think, right? There are nearly 3 billion searches on Google in one month's time. One of the points made in this list of rapidly changing dynamics in our culture that just stuck out to me was that by the year 2005, one out of every eight couples who married met online. One out of eight. And that number has increased dramatically in the last three years. I did a little digging and found out that the fastest growing trend in dating is e-dating, More and more relationships are developing online. In fact, I read one author who did a lot of extensive research on the subject and recorded that conservative estimates indicate there are currently 50 million people who are using online dating services. 50 million people. Now, if you've been around here for a while, um, you've probably heard me take a crack or two at you know, eHarmony or whatever. And, and I want you to know that a dating service is not the big bad wolf, all right? I want you to, to track with me through the course of this study. And I want to say a few things, and you need to hear everything in order to believe that I'm balanced, which I hope I am, have prayed as I've prepared this. But, you know, we have wonderful couples in our church who've met through an online dating service. I've met Uh, Several of them. It's one of those gray areas. There isn't a verse in the Bible about, you know, online dating. Um, I looked for one. I couldn't find it. Uh, There isn't one. Uh, How you communicate with the one that you fall in love with, the Bible just doesn't address it. You know, fortunately, by the time I started dating, the telephone. There you go. That had been around for a while. You know, that's that black, glossy plastic thing you used to hang up on your kitchen wall. Well, I use that. However, I think there needs to be a warning for every single individual, not just for online dating services, but dating, period. The word that has sort of risen to the top of the dating scene 
It's promised by online dating services. It's pursued by millions of singles worldwide is, is this word, compatibility. That is the leading word. One web dating service promises to match you with numerous dimensions of compatibility, which are, and I quote, scientifically based predictors of long-term relationship success. Those are interesting words. Scientifically based predictors of long-term relationship success. Part of the emerging problem that's coupled together with this is, is the fact that reports are now coming in, because this phenomenon has been around now for uh, a few years, estimating that as high or as many as 90% of online daters are lying about something. One researcher wrote, for men, the major areas of deception in an online relationship, of course you can't see them and so you won't know until you get to know them better, but the, the key areas of deception are for men, their income, their height, and their marital status. For women, the major areas of deception are their weight and their age. I'm not even going to go there, okay? Just so you know. So listen to this. A scientifically based predictor matching you with someone you've never met could actually be created by someone who is lying. In fact, online dating services are now estimating, and I'm telling you this further to terrify you even more, that at least 12% of online male suitors are already married. Even more commonly, singles are developing online relationships with more than one person at a time, which in a church setting or a social setting you would never be allowed to do. One of our pastors on staff emailed me this week and said that he's aware of individuals in our church who've been hurt by this very thing. One woman discovered the man she was falling in love with, he wrote, was involved with another woman online at the same time. She found out later. Another couple canceled their wedding plans after dating in real life because they realized uh, what matched them online didn't gel with primary goals in real life. Pastor uh, Harbaugh wrote me this saying, we believe online dating sites can only give a person an introduction. We advise them to spend no less than six months seeing that individual live their life in person where they can be observed day in and day out, making decisions, choosing friends, watching how they treat other people, relating in the body of Christ, and so on. It's good advice. A key word that sums up the advantages of dating over time in real life is the word accountability. Accountability with friends who observe your relationship. Accountability with uh, pastors and spiritual leaders who get to know you both. Accountability with peers you rub shoulders with and, and even parents who might offer insight and feedback. All of that is invaluable. The truth is, whether online or, or on, a, on a live date, we all know what it means to put our best foot forward. That's what you do, right? We all did that. On my first date with Marcia, uh, to a church service, no less. I have been taking her to church ever since. I showed up at her dormitory 
wearing my best suit. I mean, it was, it was something. Um, it was dark blue, heavy wool with large mafia stripes, pinstripes. I had on a dark blue shirt and a white polyester necktie that just shone. She told me that when she opened the door to meet me, she nearly fainted. She didn't know if I was there to pick her up or shoot her. <laughs> she told me much, much later, she said, she said, Stephen, I wanted to be with you, but I didn't want to be seen with you. <laughs> and I thought I was ready. I even had on a pair of baby blue saddle oxfords to just sort of top it all off. Oh, yeah. yeah you, got, you got the same good taste she does. Well, you don't go out on a date and, you know, tell the person all your idiosyncrasies. Uh, you know, all the, all, the, all the strange things. You wait till later. After you're married. No, I mean later. After you've dated a while. But dating in real life provides time for that later. It, it allows for later things to develop. Online dating speeds up the process because a person has been given the reassurance that they have been matched. They have found someone just like them, as if marrying someone just like you would be a good thing, right? So let's be honest. We're all fallen. We're all clay pots. And romance happens to take place between two sinners. And don't misunderstand as well, similar tastes, similar desires, similar interests are wonderful things. But those differences and those distinctives and those different perspectives and tastes can be used by God who gave them to your God-planned, God-created spouse. And they are intended to complement and to broaden and develop and deepen who you are and how you think and how you live. The biblical view of marriage is not so much compatibility as it is complementing. Complementing means there are differences to work out. There are perspectives to sharpen. There are thought processes to balance. And God puts two people that have differences together to make a whole. Two sinners seeking God's grace and his will for their lives They covenant to love each other for better or for worse. And they happen to provide the best illustration on the planet of the love of Christ for his church. Think about it. We happen to be the bride of Christ. How compatible are we to him? Which reminds me, don't forget that two people can share a lot of similar tastes and interests. But if they do not share a relationship with Jesus Christ they will never be truly compatible where it really matters. That search for Mr. Right, that search for Miss Right, is not a search for someone like you. It is a search for someone who wants to be like Christ. That is foundational. So conversion to Christ is the starting point. It's extremely dangerous to consider dating someone as an opportunity to evangelize him or her. We don't believe in evangelistic dating. Uh, Some of you may have married an unbeliever. 
And you knew it when you started dating. Your heart was swept along and then you married him or her. And they came to faith after you married and we praise God. But you are not the rule. You are the exception. You're the exception. Our churches are filled with spiritual widows, married, but do not have spouses who love Christ. So you begin with conversion. If that internet dating service you've chosen doesn't include your relationship and commitment to Jesus Christ, how can they find you a match? In fact, here's the way Paul wrote it when he talked about not making unequal yokes between believer and unbeliever. Great context for the marriage relationship in 2 Corinthians 6. He says, because what fellowship has light with darkness? What fellowship? You could translate that compatibility. What compatibility has light with darkness? So you can put all of your compatibilities over on one side. You both love the same kind of music. Uh, Food, career, number of children, sense of humor, personality, uh, background, geography, accent, whatever. Put it all over here in one pile. But if there is not spiritual life by virtue of faith in Christ, all of those will eventually become incidentals. The bottom line is conversion, then character. How do you detect character? Over time, with prayer, asking the Lord for discernment and guidance and building that into your own life as well as looking for that in someone else's life, you'll detect over time and discern true character. If, if Boaz and Ruth had had a checklist, I wonder what, what it would have looked like. It occurred to me as I was studying this text, and so I kind of wanted to slow the train down and and talk about this issue. Because it, it occurred to me that no one would have ever matched them. Ever. They were, as far as the world goes, incompatible. Different family backgrounds with different family traditions. They were geographically worlds apart. One had grown up in idolatry and paganism. The other had grown up a follower of God. One was a mature believer, the other one a new believer. One was rich, the other was poor. One was a business owner, the other a migrant worker. One was single, the other had been married already. One had experienced the death of a spouse and the other hadn't. One was financially independent, the other lived hand to mouth. And the list could go on and on and on. But they had this in common. They had both surrendered their lives to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and, as we will see, to his word. And from their brief love story, I think it's easy to see in this encounter at the threshing floor where Ruth proposed marriage to her kinsman, Redeemer, we can make some observations about genuine character. In fact, what I want to call this is seven good reasons to say I do. Here they are. Number one, and I've already talked about some of these already in this introduction, but we'll pull them out of the text. Spirituality. Spiritual mindedness. Go back to Ruth chapter 3. 
We've already learned, by the way, if you've been with us in this study, that the relationship of Boaz with God was living. It was active. In, in the days of Judges, when everybody did that which is right in, in their own eyes, Boaz lived with this sense of spiritual awareness. You find him in chapter 2 where he is asking for the blessing of God on his employees. And we talked about how it would be so interesting to have a boss that comes to work, walks by your desk and says, how are you doing with God today? Wouldn't that be wonderful? To, To have someone who cared spiritually about you in the workplace would be certainly unique and his employees were no different in understanding the uniqueness of him. When he first met Ruth, the guy starts praying. He asks that that she would find shelter under the wings of God. I imagine right then and there she is saying, that's, wow, that would be a guy I would be interested in. And now at the threshing floor, after, after the love of his life, he's already fallen in love with her, asks him to become her kinsman redeemer, which means, as you know, the goel, to, to be the one to marry her, buy up her late husband's estate, pay off all of her family debts. The first thing Boaz said in verse 10 of chapter 3 is, in response, may you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. And I said last time that Hebrew word is simply one word, yeehaw, basically is what he meant. God bless you, Ruth, is what he said. This wasn't an act. It really wasn't the best foot forward. This was life for him. He loved God. And God was always on his lips. He had an active, living, walking, breathing relationship with God. This is, this is foundational, men and women. This is where you, you begin. Why? Because unless the Lord builds the house You labor in vain to build it on your own, Psalm 127, 1. In fact, I am so convinced of that being foundational. Every couple will have challenges and difficulties, and whenever I'm involved in a wedding, it's always very moving to me to come to that dedication prayer. And I'm always close to tears because I realize as I'm holding their hands, They have their hands clasped, and we're having that dedication prayer. I have no idea what they're going to face in their lives. No idea how high the mountain peaks are going to be and how deep the valleys are going to be. But here they stand at the threshold of life, and they must stand there united in their faith to Christ. It will be tested. It will be challenged. And so at some point in the wedding ceremony, it's my tradition to ask the young man or the older man, the young woman, older woman, at some point, would you say in the presence of these witnesses, understanding the significance of having a relationship with Jesus Christ, that you have invited Christ into your life? And I have that man say out loud, I have. Do you believe that this marriage is the will of God in your life? Yes, I do. Do you promise to make him not only the Lord of your heart, but the Lord of your home as well? Yes. And then I say the same thing to his, his bride. Understanding that, that we're sinners, we're progressing, 
We, we, we make great statements of faith and we have times of doubt. But there is that underlying relationship with the grace of God. And it is foundational. So for those of you who are single, it, it really doesn't take a long time to discover whether or not this very first quality is present. Spiritual mindedness or, or spirituality. To find out whether or not they're, they're sincerely walking with Christ is really your first search. So you ask yourself the question, okay, I've been on one date, two dates, I've had two conversations or maybe three. Have they brought God into the conversation yet? Do they talk about Him? Do they talk about pleasing Him? Do they talk about being related to Him? Have they said anything about wanting to live for Him? Do they encourage you to follow Him too? Have you ever seen their Bible? Well, yeah, I think it's under the front seat of the car. That's a sign. It's written in the sky. Run. Another character quality in this list would be humility. These two attributes don't necessarily show up in the same body. It's possible to be spiritually minded and and proud. Look at verse 10 of chapter 3. Boaz says to her, now as he's responding to her proposal, he says, middle part, you have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. Now that's a long way of saying, I can't believe you chose me. I can't believe you want me. When he refers here to her first kindness, he's referring to the way she's treated Naomi. That kindness is known by us all. That first kindness, wow, that was amazing to see the kind of commitment you made to this woman, your mother-in-law, and he's referencing her care for Naomi. But then he says, oh, but your last kindness is greater than your first. What's the last kindness? That you want me. You are so kind to want to marry me. You guys that are married, wasn't it so kind of your wife to marry you? Amen? Amen. Oh, that's good. Did you hear that, ladies? That was strong. Now, we're told nothing about Boaz's age, by the way. Now, he does reference her as his daughter. Indicates that he's probably older uh, than her. It can be, however, an expression of kindness. And, and care. Furthermore, the Bible, by the way, doesn't tell us, it doesn't tell us what Ruth looks like. Not one word. And it doesn't tell us what Boaz looks like. Doesn't tell us anything about his physique. I mean, we don't know if he's if he's tall, dark, and handsome, or or tall, skinny, and bald, which is so much better. <laughs> Let's face it, I just want to tell the truth. We, we do know that he was wealthy enough to hire employees. He was wealthy enough to own fields. But that makes it all, all the more obvious how, how different they are. Here's a destitute woman, one step away from being a beggar, from another country, with nothing tangible to offer but debt and potential derision, as we'll see later. And Boaz says, I am so 
thrilled you want me. I'm so happy. His humility is obvious. We've watched it, haven't we? We've watched him care for his employees. We've, we've watched him communicate concern for those around him. Now he's got his sleeves rolled up and he's out here at the threshing floor. He's even spending the night out there. He could have, he could have bought people to do that for him. The truth is, in his culture, he was near the top of the food chain. He had every reason to be proud instead of humble. And yet every time he opens his mouth, the quality of humility comes out. Uh, Guys, as you study this along with me, I hope that with me you are challenged already by this man. Another character quality you might want to add to your list is the word priority. In other words, know what matters most. And and Ruth uh, evidently does as well. That's clear too. Look at verse 11. Boaz goes on to say, listen, the reason I'm so pleased with your proposal and I want to say yes is because all of my people in the city know that you are a woman of beauty. No. All of my people in the city know that you are a woman of, of rare talent. No. All of the people in my city know that you are a woman of class. No. All of the people in my city know that you are a woman of personal charm. No. All of the people in my city know that you are a woman of excellence. Your text may read, noble character. That's what you're known for. She evidently had priorities as well. The same word is translated virtuous in Proverbs chapter 31. By the way, lest you think I'll go to Proverbs 31 and start a sermon out of there. It's also the same word used in chapter 2 of Boaz translated wealth. I think, unfortunately, it's the same word, hayil. This is a, a person of moral character and strength. You hear a lot of sermons about the virtuous woman. Too bad you don't hear sermons on the virtuous man. Same word is used for both of them. Here is then the making of a good match. They are both committed to the priority of godly living. They were incompatible in so many ways except character. And that became the footings dug deep in the soil of their hearts that allowed them to build the foundation for a home and a haven throughout their generation. Let me give you a fourth marker in this godly match. Honesty. This is where, now in the text, Boaz will drop an atomic bomb which could explode the mood and the moment. Look at verse 12. He says, Now it is true... I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Now the law of the Goel, the law of the kinsman redeemer, allowed the the closest relative to the woman to redeem her if he was available. He would marry her, buy the estate of her husband, and, and they would have children as God would bless them, and the children would be given, at least the firstborn, the name of the deceased husband, which would allow his name to continue on. And and the one that had the right to redeem the widow was the closest one 
to her in her family. And so here they are on the threshing floor. Ruth has said, I want you to be my Goel, my kinsman redeemer. Boaz is thrilled. They love each other. And then he says, wait, there's somebody else more closely related to you than me. Okay, so? No, not so. Stop. There is a great deal of anguish in those words. I imagine Ruth beginning to cry. Did she know? Did Naomi tell her? Did Naomi withhold that little piece of information knowing that Ruth might not have gone had she known it? Did, did Ruth already know and go to the threshing floor anyway to inform Boaz that she really wanted him to redeem her according to the Old Testament provision of the kinsman redeemer, which I would throw my head in on that one. We, we don't know for sure. What we do know is that after Boaz has told her that he effectively loves her and would be thrilled to marry her, he tells her what he doesn't know she might know. He tells her the truth. Even though it could ruin everything. Listen, Ruth, I would love to redeem you as your closest relative, but I'm not your closest relative. I hate to tell you this. There's somebody older than I am and thus first in line who has the right to redeem you. And I thought about this for a while. You know, today's culture, Boaz would have gotten a lawyer to sue the other guy for his rights. He, uh, he would have found a counselor or a psychologist to tell him to follow his heart, do whatever made him happy. And loving Ruth is wonderful and God created love and would certainly want him to be happy. So don't worry about the law. Leave it be. Boaz would have found a pastor to tell him that the laws of kinsman redeemer were for a different context and culture. And the laws of the kinsman redeemer don't apply to him. And besides, they were, they're centuries old and they are no longer relevant. He could have found some friends to tell him, look, Boaz, listen, you're not getting any younger. You love her. She loves you. These are the days of the judges where everybody does what is right in their own eyes. And if it's right for you, then man, listen, it's all, it's all right. Get over your Victorian guilt trip and go for it. Any of that sound familiar? That's what would happen today had Boaz and Ruth lived. Instead, Boaz simply says, Ruth, I can't because it's not right. And I hate to tell you this, but i got to be honest and tell you there's someone closer in line. Let me give you a fifth word that follows on the heels of this. It is the word accountability. Spirituality, humility, priority, honesty, accountability. As I read and reread and reread again this text, I found it hard to imagine any man in Boaz's sandals saying what he's about to say. Verse 13. Remain this night, and when morning comes, if he will redeem you, good, let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you as the Lord lives. Now, did I just read what I thought I just read? If he will redeem you, Good. 
let him redeem you. Is Boaz some kind of concrete block? No emotion made out of granite, no feelings. Hey, if, if that other guy wants you, I'm fine with that, I guess. Not on your life. We've already read his first response. I mean, he's saying yee-haw all over that threshing floor, hoping not to wake anybody up. He's thrilled. He, he, is, he is so moved that she would want him. He's so excited. He loves her too. He, he just happens to be a man of character to the point that he submits his emotions to the laws of God and allows the law of God to, to put a boundary on his heart. This matter has to be settled legally. Ancient Jewish commentary, by the way, on this scene called the Midrash, taught that the other kinsman was Naomi's brother-in-law, which would have been an uncle uh, to Boaz. So at at this point, his mind is obviously racing, and we're going to see that proven as he lies there that night, he's holding himself in check, but he's accountable to the word of God. And his mind is racing about that moment when he's going to see his uncle. We don't know his name. It's uncle, get out of town. Uncle, move to another village or whatever his name happens to be. He's going to face him. He's going to very cleverly approach him, as we'll see. But, but let me just stop for a moment here a little longer and, and say this, especially to my single friends. Find someone who is willing to set aside their emotions and their personal feelings in order to do what is right. And you are well on your way to finding a man or woman worthy of saying, I do. I don't know what the context will be. You'll see it. It may happen. Where their heart is kept by the word of God where they will set aside their emotion in order to do what is right. Maybe it's responding to a boss. Maybe it's responding to some difficulty where you know how they feel and yet they're guarded in their response based on a commitment to the word of God. Boaz says, look, we know what the law says and we're going to follow the law. It reminded me of this, (laughs) this uh, incident, this little seven-year-old girl who obviously had her emotions well under control, much like Boaz here. An eight-year-old boy in her Sunday school class at church asked her to marry him. And she said, I can't. He protested, well, why not? And she said, well, my daddy married my mommy, my grandpa married my grandma, and all my uncles married my aunt, so we can't get married because we're not related. not good i mean we got to do what's right we're not related we can't get married do what's right here's something though that's easy to overlook family relation or not there is nothing binding upon boaz or ruth to surrender to the laws of kinsman redeemer they could have married Uh, They could have sent a a note to that other man who didn't care anyway. No big deal. He didn't want her. But but they didn't have to follow the law. And again, this is the times of the judges. 
you do whatever's right. But it mattered. In fact, since Ruth more than likely knew about the other relative, she is also willing, as we see her here, to abide by whatever the law of God allowed. Nothing less and nothing more. Let me, let me break this down even more simply. Boaz would rather remain single and lose the love of his life than not follow God's design. He didn't have to. For him, it wasn't Ruth or someone else. It was Ruth or nobody else. He had already thought it through. What, what is remarkable about this individual is that instead of coming up with loopholes to the covenant of God, he was strategizing on how to approach his uncle. There's another word that comes to mind, number six. It's the word purity. Look at verse 13, the latter part. Boaz said, lie down until morning. Lie where? Verse 14. So she lay at his feet until morning. Now we have already dealt with this discussion, uh, this issue. But uh, let's, let's go back again for a moment. Make no mistake here. Boaz might have taken advantage of her. She has already expressed her love to him. He has expressed his love to her. Uh, there, there isn't anything binding them. They wouldn't be looked down on. They could do whatever they wanted. I mean, what more would you need? But no advantage was taken and no solicitation offered. And I couldn't help but just think of one word, purity. And their culture hadn't bought into it because everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. Let me give a practical word here, and I want to be sensitive. I'm uh, in a mixed audience, but let me just say this to every single woman. If a man demands your body before he declares his vows, his name is not worth taking. In simple terms, throw him back in the lake. Keep fishing, okay? I want to put it right down there where you can't miss it. You fishermen caught it, I know. Keep fishing. And let me say this to single men. If a woman uses her body to manipulate your heart, you have little reason to trust her heart. What you have here in Bethlehem this night are two sinners who happen to be highly committed to God. Here you have two people who've quietly pledged their love and they've chosen to wait in purity to see what God would do next. Let me quickly give you one more word. Number seven. The word generosity came, came to mind. In verse 15, in fact, look there. He says to her, Give me the cloak that is on you and hold it. She held it. He measured six measures of barley and laid it on her. And she went into the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did it go, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her. She said, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, Do not go to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Is he a wise man or what? <laughs> wow. He had, by the way, he had every reason to keep his money, to keep his grain, 
But Boaz was sensitive to the needs of Ruth and Naomi. And this, this amount of grain, by the way, would last about two weeks. So Boaz is thinking, that's about all I need before you're mine, Lord willing, and I can take care of you. So he gives her two weeks to take care of herself and to take care of uh, Naomi. Listen, if that individual you're interested in is stingy and selfish, don't expect generosity to follow the wedding ceremony. So watch how they use money. Do they hoard what they have? Do, do they spend money only on themselves? Now, I'm not talking about careful stewardship. I'm talking about being stingy. Frankly, you, you could say they're, they're cheap. That's an ancient Hebrew word. <laughs> but here is Boaz. He's showing genuine care and rare generosity. And in fact, James says over in chapter 1 that the pure religion is to care for widows. Now, obviously, he loved one of them, made it a lot easier. But he was demonstrating not just care for her, but care for Naomi. Well, there's a checklist for you. It's not in any way comprehensive. Maybe it'll get you started in the right direction. Spirituality, humility, priority, honesty, accountability, purity, and generosity. Those are observations from a life marked by character. Friends, it doesn't matter how you met that guy or that girl online or in real life. Begin with conversion. Move to character. And then no matter how many compatibilities you have or you don't have, with the Word of God sort of serving as a rudder for your heart in the sea of emotion, you will be able to navigate. You'll be able to sail through in a God-honoring journey. doesn't mean the, the water is going to be smooth. It may be very rough. You might be thrown out of the boat a few times. But according to his will, which is what you desire, which you are pursuing, you just might dock at the altar where you will commit your heart and your life to this love of your heart and life and commit to a marriage that you trust and desire to glorify Christ and advance the gospel and, and illustrate Christ's love for his church, create a haven and a relationship together in the midst of a perverted world. And if God gives you children to raise a generation to live for and to love Jesus Christ, who still to this day happens to be calling a bride to himself, as our kinsman redeemer. I think we ought to thank him for choosing us. We do thank you. There isn't anything in us, Father, desirable. There isn't any merit but in your condescending grace and love. You sought us out. You wooed us with your spirit. And you took destitute, poor, 
needy people like us. And you redeemed us. You have called us to reflect now qualities in your own character. And this is our journey and passion and desire. We look at a list like this, spirituality, humility, priority, honesty, accountability, purity, and generosity. And if it were a test, there is no doubt that we would all fail at any given time. So we offer ourselves to you fresh. Would you build these not into that future spouse or the spouse you've given us? Would you build these things into us? Why don't you ask the Lord in your own words to do this kind of work in your heart? Let's sing. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have